I want to do a shout out to one of our amazing partners, Banzoogle. Now, Banzoogle is an all-in-one platform that makes it easy to build a stunning website for artists. Now, I have personally have used web builders for years. In fact, the 8020 Records website is maintained by yours truly. But honestly, these days, as someone who represents artists, I just want something straightforward that still looks amazing and works with everything that we use, such as Bandcamp, SoundCloud, Bands of Town, Printful, and so forth. And Banzoogle checks off all of these. Also, for those of you who have no idea how to build websites, don't worry, they make it super easy there too. You do not need to know a single line of code. In fact, after you sign up, they go step-by-step -step through each part of the process to get you up and running. Plus, their pricing is practically the same as if you paid for a web host. So really, it's a no-brainer. Lastly, and most importantly, what I love about Banzoogle is the people. Every single person I've spoken to has been nothing but kind and extremely responsive and helpful. They truly care about the artists that use their platform. And honestly, don't just take my word for it. Go listen to my interview with Stacey Bedford, the CEO of the company. Banzoogle is also offering to all our listeners 15% off the first year of any subscription. Just enter the promo code 8020show or 8020show, like the numbers, on banzoogle.com. I'll also put it in the description. Built by musicians for musicians. Banzoogle. You're listening to The 8020 Show, an inside look into the music industry. Hello and welcome everybody to The 8020 Show. I am your host, Mike Zimmerlich, and my next guest is Claire Thompson, marketing manager for Fearless Records. In this interview, we discuss her journey from starting at street level, quite literally, and progressing up to her current role. We also chat about her day-to-day -day activities, strategy, and the current marketing landscape for artists. It is my honor and pleasure to give you Claire Thompson. Hey, Claire, how's it going? Hey, it's going well. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks. Thank you so much for being on the show. I really do appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm stoked to be here. Of course. In fact, uh, I like to always mention to our audience about how I meet the guests on the 8020 show. And for us, it was through um, a mutual, mutual colleague, Mark, who also has been a guest on the 8020 show before. And so uh, we got looped into for several different reasons and it was like, you should be on the podcast too. And now here we are. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's funny how things work out serendipitously. Absolutely. And the other thing, too, which was fantastic was that we uh, got a chance to meet in person, which I actually usually don't get a chance to do with my guests. But we got to meet in person at the When We're Young Festival uh, sideshow event at the Brooklyn Bowl in Vegas uh, only a few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a testament to just how important that festival was to the scene. Right? really like literally bringing everybody together. Absolutely. So one of the things I was when I was researching into you that I found really fascinating was your passion for photography, which looked like was where you started getting into music because a lot of your photography was, um, you know, at shows and at concerts and festivals and so forth, which is by far, which was really amazing, by the way, um, really amazing work. Can you talk about your um, passion in photography and how that came about? Yeah, so I most of my uh, music photography experience was when I was just figuring out that I wanted to have a career in music, and I was trying to figure out in what capacity I wanted to work in it. Um, and uh, 
uh, in particular, I was interested in possibly doing something on the creative side without being the musician, you know, themselves or being a musician myself. Uh, and photography was, um, you know, I think with, the, with social media beca becoming so, I mean, social media was already prevalent at the time, but platforms like Instagram really made uh, photographers like Adam Elbakayas, uh, you know, more visible, more accessible. And I think through that, it was like, wow, this is actually a really cool way to engage with music. That's, you know, that's also creative and you get to do a lot of very cool creative things. And so I started photographing mostly just in my like local scene. Um, I would bring like a point and shoot camera to the like, you know, nationally touring shows that I went to and would edit those photos as well. Um, I didn't really do it like professionally per se. I think I, you know, got my first $20 bill handed to me for turning over photos to some like high school friends or something like that. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. Um, I kind of realized that even though I liked the creative part of it, um, unsurprisingly, I wasn't super hot on like the very technical side of photography, um, which I think pushed me a little bit into is, is partially what pushed me into wanting to stick on the business side. Um, you know, when I was graduating high school, going into college, figuring out what I wanted to study and, and what I might um, more seriously um, want to pursue in music. Was there a particular moment that you can remember that you realized this is what I wanted to do in the music industry? For business specifically, I don't think there was a single like individual moment. I just know, I mean, to be honest, when I was, you know, deciding what to major in in college, I was like, well, if I was going to do photography, that seems a little, a little riskier than I wanted to probably do with my college degree. So, you know, I knew with marketing, I would still be able to do a lot of creative things and still be like really involved, you know, with the artists and be close to the music. And I, I thought that sounded great. Um, plus, I never was interested in touring. Um, so I was, I was kind of glad to have something. I hope my parents are not listening because they're actually professional photographers. <laughs> oh, I, I mean, no, photography is amazing. Uh, <laughs> no, I get it. It's like it's it's really hard though, right? Because you're you're finding you're you realizing where you want to, you know, the where you want to be in, like your you know your passion for music. I mean, that was the same thing for myself. Was that I knew I wanted to be in music in some form or fashion, and I did play music, but I was never to the point of uh, any remotely close to being professional. So, want, but wanted to be still be close to it, like you mentioned. And uh, so again, business was the you know to me was the was the choice for myself, as I really was passionate about entrepreneurism and realized I wanted to take my multiple passions together, you know, to start a record label. So. I totally understand that, especially in college. It's like, well, at least with a business degree, you can take that anywhere that you want, right? Exactly. Yeah. And the other the other aspect of um, I did major, I majored in marketing communications, which was effectively marketing. Um, uh, you know, one of the other things about it is that I would be able to take it not only uh, like at a broader level, multiple industries, but you know, multiple sects within music itself. So then while you were pursuing your degree, uh, I think either during that time frame or shortly thereafter, uh, you started joining street teams, right? Yes, I joined the Fearless Records street team uh, in the winter break between the two semesters of my freshman year of college. So pretty early on. So uh, was that a strategic move on your part or still trying to figure out what you wanted to do in the music industry? Yeah, I at that point, I think I'd received the advice 
um, where in music you either hitch onto a band and achieve success that way, or you get internships and get a job that way. And so in college, I was trying to work both avenues. And in terms of getting an internship, the street team seemed like a good way to get like meaning, I don't want to say meaningful volunteer work, but I guess, um, I guess maybe that's the the easiest way to phrase it. Uh, basically, I would be able to do work that is not dissimilar to what I would eventually end up doing in an internship, but there's like no barrier to entry. You sign up, you know, don't say anything alarming in your application, and then you're basically in. And then um, you can take advantage, you know, to whatever extent you desire of the opportunities that Street Team offers, which um, thankfully with Fearless was, you know, there were quite a few opportunities. So can you talk about some of the things that you learned being on the street team? Yeah, I think one of the first things is that, um, and this is certainly more, you know, a more nuanced experience, you know, than maybe I would go into today. But in general, like if, if you do work hard, it, do, it does pay off. Um, and, you know, if you are ambitious and strive to make connections with, you know, the people that you have the opportunity to connect with, then, you know, there is, you know, there are benefits to reap, I guess, from that. In this case, you know, I really wanted to use Street Team to, you know, like I said, be able to, you know, put lines on a resume that would, you know, talk about doing a little bit of social promo, even if it was like informal, right, because it was Street Team, um, and, you know, be able to even get a little bit of FaceTime with people at Fearless Records and, like, have my name, you know, in the inbox of people who worked at that company and like could theoretically become, you know, bosses of me as an intern. Um, I yeah, yeah, I can't, I can't remember exactly what the question was, but the, those are what I wanted to get out of the out of the three team, and thankfully, um, that ended up, you know, being the case. I was able to accomplish those goals. I would say I would say that's a very light uh, response for that. I mean, look at you now. I mean, you're now the marketing manager for Fearless Records. I mean, you went literally went up the entire chain from from street team, literally from the street level up to where you are now. Yes. Yeah. And that. Oh, your, your original question was by, was street team by design. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was by design to, to achieve those two goals. And I know that there are some some adages about you know, you know, success or whatever is, you know, X percent luck, X percent hard work, X percent timing. And, you know, really one of the things about Street Team was, you know, both putting in, you know, the hard work portion of that, but then setting myself up, you know, to be lucky and to, you know, even be able to be in the right place at the right time, um, which is what ended up happening in a lot of places in my, in my career. Um, you know, I did obviously, I, I, I do believe that I, you know, work hard. I, I try to work hard, but I would be lying if I said that uh, luck didn't have a big, um, big aspect or, you know, wasn't a big component of getting to being a marketing manager as well. So besides luck being the factor, uh, I, you know, is there any other attributes that you would uh, attain to as far as your success within within Fearless itself? Because so many will hit ceilings within organizations like this, you know, especially at that size, right? Um, so can you talk about what you feel is the, the, the moves that you did make that helped you progress your career? Yeah, I think being willing to do anything and really like... I feel like this is sort of obvious that a lot of people do try to do this, but really making your own opportunities and going, you know, as far above and beyond as you physically can 
within, you know, whatever opportunities you have, whether that's as an intern or as a street team member, even, you know, in an entry level position and, you know, really trying to think beyond, you know, what's being asked of you or what you could even do better at your own work and figuring out, you know, what other opportunities of growth are there that I could start working on now. That that was one part of it um, was just being really, like as engaged as I possibly could. Um, and the other thing, uh, you know, in I know in general networking is stressed, and I think you know that is very true. Having having relationships and having good relationships is important, but also having someone superior to you who is like really on your side and specifically wants to see you grow. Um, I think that's a really important thing too. That it's not just a matter of doing well and you know keeping people happy to the extent that you do your job well, but also having people who are like willing to go and like advocate for you um you know when some of these higher up conversations might arise about you know you know who might fill a position or who would they offer jobs to or like you know even giving recommendations to other companies if there isn't you know a chance to stay in whatever company you might already be working with can we talk more about your role, current role as marketing manager um can you talk a little bit about your day-to-day what what What's that like? So people have an idea of what what entails being a marketing manager for Fearless Records. Yeah, yeah. And my my job, like the the specific items, do they do vary quite a bit, which I'm sure a lot of people at labels and like music in general will say. But most of my work falls into kind of two categories. It's like general Fearless branding work, um, which encompasses festivals, and then the other half is. Um, I do what can essentially be just be described as day-to-day like um, uh, assistance to our product manager, uh, one of our product managers, um, you know, on, on their, on their artists. So for, you know, that, that day-to-day, uh, those day-to-day tasks, I think are much more consistent, um, you know, cause they're, they're all release-based, right? So it's setting up um, singles and albums to come out or pre-orders to launch you know, planning, uh, you know, digital rollout campaigns, getting a lot of the like technical side together, you know, getting in um, like, you know, getting pre-save landing pages together, getting like YouTube videos uploaded, getting things claimed, getting tech copy in, just like all all those little tasks and, and bigger tasks too that go into releasing any kind of music. And then the other half that um, can vary a lot more by time, time of year and even really just, you know, um, you know, what goals, um, my coworkers and I have for the label, um, and that's for like festivals and fearless branding. So like for, for the holidays, we like to do a lot of different things, you know, we'll do like a black Friday sale, things like that. We did a little bit for Halloween. We, uh, actually just had a discussion. I think it was yesterday about what we're going to do for like, you know, the winter holidays, what kinds of like general fearless initiatives we can launch. And then for festivals, we uh, we do sponsorships and on-site activations a couple of times each year. So I now oversee those um, from basically from start to finish. That's amazing. Uh, one of the questions I do want to ask you, and you can keep it broad if you need if you need to, because um, I've asked this question also to a number of guests, especially in uh, for labels and distribution, is what is usually the lead time that you have from the time that you get everything. F- in your hands. And when I mean by everything, I mean final artwork, 
final masters of music from the time that you receive everything to the time of music actually getting released. What's usually the time frame, or what, or also what do you prefer is the time frame for something like that? I mean, it varies so wildly. It's a little bit unbelievable, actually, how how much it varies from project to project and artist to artist. Um, you know, I think a really easy answer to that is the way that like Fearless slash Concord is set up with Universal is that um, like the very latest you can get in, you know, just like the re the actual the request itself plus um, like tech hobbies, like liner notes, that kind of thing, credits is like a month in advance of the street day, the day, you know, the, you know, whatever the releases will go live. Um, so that's like the, the tightest, tightest turnaround. Uh, we've had a couple of bands who, you know, have, have had magic worked for them and have, uh, you know, gotten, the, you know, had releases go live with even less lead time. Um, you know, submitting them with in regards to when they submitted the materials for something like vinyl, uh, that's going to be a much longer lead time. I think it's like six months now from when the request goes in to when yep. it will actually be pressed and in stores. Um, and then the, I mean, it's a hard question to answer because some of these dates are flexible. It kind of varies by time of year, right? So like right now, for releases that are around the holidays. We have much stricter deadlines because people are going to be on like their holiday vacations, but other times of the year, people might be able to like pull some strings and make things work if you, you know, even if you turn in like art or something like that a week late. Um, yeah, it's a very complicated answer, actually. It really is. And I was just kind of curious because I've, I've heard all kinds of responses to this question. That's why I wanted to ask because, uh, you know, even as on our side, you know, as a, as a small independent label, you know, we usually for, I, I try to make it a rule of thumb and I sometimes break my own rules, but usually like to say four to six weeks for a single and then usually at least six to eight weeks for an album is usually the, the rule of thumb that I like to go for because it does take time to not only internally process everything meant to get everything planned out, but you know, also the other thing too is that you don't know what you're working with until you have the final versions in your hands and knowing, okay, what ones are actually going to be the singles? How many singles are we actually going to be releasing? Um, it, are we going to be doing a, like a, you know, a waterfall strategy? Like it, so much you can only theorize even from, you know, pre-mixes until you actually have the final versions in your hands. And then of course, all the preparation that goes behind it. So that's just in general, even if you don't have any representation, um, you have to be really thinking about those things. So I like to have that as a general rule. Also Spotify in general kind of likes it when you do it four weeks in advance too. So, um, so it's just one of those things where, you know, the, the more, and of course, too, as you know, the more complex the project, the more time it takes to also to execute on those projects as well. So if it's a one single, it's a lot less complicated than having it a full length album that also is going to be releasing with vinyl. Yes, and I think that's a really good point. Uh, you know, and and even the types of single makes a big difference, right? You know, a, a later cycle, you know, IG track might not have, uh, you know, quite as elaborate of, as elaborate of a release as maybe like the lead single would, um, and like a bridge track, depending on the purpose of the bridge track, might you know sometimes those kind of, you know, we we can get those out a lot faster than yeah, like a lead single or, or something 
that uh, you know might be a smaller but still very important part of a larger campaign. So I know we've been going off, off of this a little bit. I do want to talk about just overall challenges with marketing because obviously the landscape for marketing now for music is completely different. Um, even like five, 10 years ago, it's it's very different than you know now. So can you talk about the current challenges if you're seeing in the marketing landscape for promoting music? Yeah, I mean, where, where to begin with, you know, what like, I'm trying to think if there's like a specific biggest challenge that would stand out um i mean i think i think one thing that everybody wants that has ultimately very little control over is getting a song to take off you know hit on tiktok or you know become popular on on instagram or something along those lines i i know that that you know we, we do spend a lot of time strategizing how to get you know all of our tracks as much exposure as you know as we can get them on um you know as we call them like short form content so like instagram reels um tiktok youtube shorts being like the big three um and then i think i feel like this used to be a really major challenge the longer those platforms the longer the, these platforms have existed, the less of a challenge and the more of an opportunity it's become. But also, um, you know, figuring out slash helping artists figure out, um, you know, how to maintain their identities on some of these platforms, right? There's like the stereotype that TikTok is like just for dancing, but it hasn't been just for dancing for years now. <laughs> um, you know, I think that there are a lot of opportunities for, you know, all kinds of artists, regardless of genre and regardless of, um, you know, even what their like general identity may be. And I think, you know, all of our, our artists are figuring that out. And a lot of them, I think, have gotten some really great, um, you know, have some really great profiles and, you know, compelling content that they develop now. But that was a really big thing for a while was, you know, getting bands on calls and, you know, making sure that they knew, like, you don't have to do it. You don't have to, like, go on there and, like, embarrass yourselves or anything like that. You can go on there and do similar things to what you would do to other platforms, but it's just going to be in, you know, a 15 to 30 second video form. I do want to talk about that as well, because there, so one of the things that um, is becoming very real these days is content fatigue, because, you know, even before there was uh, some stress and anxiety around posting even on a daily basis, but now, especially with something like with short form videos with, with TikTok, that's been suggested to post like three to four times a day. And that can cause a lot of anxiety, especially for artists. And uh, I do get this quite a bit from artists is that, you know, not only just what kind of content to release, but also the stress of releasing content on TikTok in comparison to also writing and rehearsing and all those other aspects. So can you talk more about like content fatigue? Because also I know that uh, your internship was also involved with social media with Fearless. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that really helps with the content fatigue and, and you know, how helpful this is also depends on how involved the artist is with their own socials. But getting a good team who can assist in churning out ideas and, you know, quickly getting approvals from the band where, you know, they, they know what's going up and they like, they, they do approve it, right? They like want that content to go live that aren't necessarily, you know, the ones sitting around and brainstorming, you know, what kinds of things you're going to post. I think that helps a lot. Um you know, there, there are some other like natural parts of an album cycle that lend themselves to, uh, you know, kind of solving that problem on their own. Like when artists are on tour, a lot of times they can get 
really good footage, um, you know, from crowds and from, you know, if they're doing like, you know, behind the scenes tour footage, then they, they're film they're filming almost every day or they could be filming every day and, and have lots of content to, you know, post from doing that. Um, you know, when they're off cycle or, you know, not on tour leading up to, you know, trying to figure out, you know, for example, what kind of like warm up content they're going to do if they're getting ready to release music that can be, um, a little bit trickier because, you know, if the band is going to be going a different direction with their, with their sound or their identity or, you know, figuring out where they're going to grow. Um, I think they're just more unknowns and, um, uh, yeah, when you're planning content for those those phases of of a you know of a cycle, you know either right before it launches or you know in the tail end of it, that make that make it trickier to come up with content or figure out what works. And then I think the content fatigue is a little bit is is worse than it would be you know if you are you know putting out music actively and you've got you know you're touring and you got behind the scenes footage and you have making of and you have you know behind the songs type content. Um, it's a lot easier. Um, you have some of those other natural milestones that you're hitting. I, I completely agree. And uh, also to front loading, I think also very much helps as well. So like, for example, as you mentioned, like if they're on tour, getting as much footage as possible on tour and then milk that footage even after they're done with tour to, to keep their fans engaged, um, doing things like that. And, or um, I know some artists, they'll, they'll do these, all, all these various different clips and they'll just do it in like a four or five hour block on a Sunday so that and they'll have them all set for the whole week. So things like that, too, I feel also definitely helps in in circumventing content fit, fatigue where you're trying to think about, you know, especially if you're trying to think about it every single day. That's very hard to do. Yes. Yeah, it's, it, it can be very exhausting. Um, and I think it also helps that, you know, especially the short form platforms, you know, you don't need to be like quite as polished in the content, you know, so all of our artists, you know, we, we encourage them to do this. Uh, still do posts like out now ads and things like that. But if they have some, you know, less edited, you know, backstage footage or whatever, that's just as appealing because it's, it's less formal. So I think that, I think the like editing process and I think, you know, to, to the extent that there's an expectation to put out so much in a way, it also kind of takes off the expectation that everything is going to be, you know, pristine and perfect, which makes it a little bit easier to, to get things out. Absolutely. So when you are developing marketing strategies, uh, especially uh, specifically for releases, um, can you talk about one component that uh, that is like a key element in uh, in having a really solid marketing strategy for release? Ooh, um, I feel like this is a little bit of a cop out answer, but you know the the place that we you know that we pretty much always start is how much budget do we have. And where is that budget going to go? Because that that can make a big difference in not not like the quality of a campaign or anything like that, but just uh, like you know strategically, what kind of content are we going to be able to get out of this? Um, you know, if we have like for example, if we have a project that does have a lot of you know video budget, then you can get a lot of con. You know, you're gonna have multiple music videos. The, the multiple music videos are gonna spawn their own content, right? Like you know the like the behind the scenes and things like that, that I had mentioned, you might be able to do like a YouTube live redirect premiere. And then, you know, so you've already got like, you know, three pieces of content right there. You can, you know, fill up, fill up a week release schedule. But if you have a band that's working on like a tighter budget, you know, a lot of that might be going to advertising and then you're going to look more at like, 
things that you know are going to be cheaper so like if you if you don't have a new video to premiere then you might do a tiktok live or an instagram live instead um uh or i'm trying to think of you know we, we have some other like kind of tried and true you know play through videos things like that and that's not to say that those those kinds of that kind of content will also go towards uh projects with you know really you know with really big budgets or not even big budgets but like um you know if if you're at like the start of a start of an album campaign for example and you haven't spent any of your money yet then you might be you know able to you just have a little bit more flexibility and so you might start with the projects you know or the campaigns that are going to cost money and then as the cycle goes on or as the budget gets used elsewhere then um that'll ch change um you know how you strategize what you're going to do to support a release I really don't think that's a cop-out answer. I think actually that is the main component for any marketing strategy is budget. Uh, that's actually the very first question I always ask when we are dealing with a release is what's the budget, right? Because, uh, you know, a thousand dollar campaign is very different than a $10,000 campaign, which is very different than a $50,000 campaign. And it's very different than a $500 campaign. And, you know, so, you know, the, the capabilities and, you know, and what opportunities out there are, it, it, it all determines like, are there, is there going to be radio ad play? Is there, you know, your radio ads being, you being utilized? Is there going to be, uh, you know, a PR strategy involved in this, right? That, that completely changes based upon what budget's available. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it, it does make a, it does make a huge difference because, and you know, if you have the budget, then like you, you, you do want to spend it. I mean, that's not to say, you know, we're, we're just going and, you know, we definitely don't go and just spend money to spend money, but you know, if you can do a really cool campaign and, you know, maybe hire out a web developer who can create a more interactive website versus, you know, something that might be like a little bit more, um, you know, a little bit simpler if you don't have that kind of, marketing money to spend then um yeah budget budget makes a big difference in, in making those kinds of decisions so i always ask these three questions with all my guests uh to kind of wrap things up here so the very first question i'm going to ask you is and that's funny because i didn't ask you tell you these questions ahead of time because i really didn't want you to think about these is um the very first concert that you ever went to my Chemical Romance 2011 Honda Civic Tour. Yes. Yeah. Such a good answer. Yeah. <laughs> Such a great answer. Okay. So next one, um, your go-to song to sing in the car. Oh, I feel like that changes a lot. I, I, I'm trying to think of what I've been just like muscle memory singing. You know what I mean? Um, and if there's anything, uh, Okay, this is, I really, I, I've listened to this song a lot. It, it came out this year, Beautiful by Wind Waker. That like intro line, um, that, that that intro line really gets me. And I used to, I had it at the top of a playlist, a couple of playlists where it would be like the first thing that I would listen to when I'd get into the car would, would be Beautiful by Wind Waker. And it's also the first song on the album they put out this year, Love Language. Um, and so I've heard a lot of it. It's catchy. I really like, I really like that song. It's fun to sing. That's, that's a good answer. <laughs> and um, lastly, if you were to give a one piece of advice for anybody who is looking to start or even progress their career in the music industry, what would that advice be? Um, I think it's to take every opportunity that 
you can um because you never you really never know like i would have never guessed that joining street team would have led to becoming marketing manager of fearless records and like obviously there were several things that happened in between then it wasn't like a straight trajectory but um yeah i think i think knowing that you know taking advantage of every opportunity that you have is at least not going to hurt anything right as long as you're doing it you know as long as you're being you know respectable you know staff or coworker, whatever it may be um i think that's really important yeah you, you never know when things are going to pay off you can't necessarily predict you know what what opportunities are going to lead to where and you know the flip side is that maybe you are betting on some job working out or you know something going you know some plan uh you know fulfilling itself and you know plans also unravel and so having some contingency you know some some backup plans um uh is is important too and you know part of being able to you know pull together you know pivots if needed for um you know for building a career is you know having good relationships and having you know as much experience as possible so yeah don't don't uh you know don't feel like you're like too good for for any opportunity or anything like that yeah you never know where it's going to lead right exactly yeah well, thank you so much for being on the show. I really do appreciate it and uh, hope I'll see you soon. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to the 8020 show. If you haven't already, please subscribe or follow. If you enjoyed the episode or this podcast overall, please leave us a review or comment on our socials, which you can find us at 8020records on pretty much all platforms. You can also check us out on our website at www.8020records.com. And as always, be happy, be healthy, and be productive.